And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. And thanks again for all your support, for checking in at iTunes and rating and reviewing, and for all your comments on Twitter. Really appreciate it. Great fun to uh, interact with you that way. So thanks, and please continue to go to iTunes and say that you dig the podcast, if you do dig it. If you don't, just tell me on Twitter. You don't have to let the people at iTunes know. Today... Dan Soder, comedian Dan Soder, will be here. I first met Dan when we were doing open mic stand-up comedy together. Uh, we'll talk about that when he gets here. Soder, from those days five or six years ago, has become one of the uh, most important young comedians in the country. Many television appearances, his own half-hour special on Comedy Central, demand for a second one, headlines clubs all over the country plays the Comedy Cellar, which is the most exclusive and hardest comedy club to pass at in the country, right here in New York City, is on Guy Code, about which he's ambivalent at best, I think. And uh, he is a world-class great guy, probably the hardest working guy in comedy. Can't wait for him to get here. It'll happen soon. And, uh, and we'll be back with you then. It looks like we're doing a duet. Oh, we are of sorts. <laughs> I'll be the bassy undertone. Yeah, you handle the bass part. Yeah, I'm all. I'm. I'm definitely bass. But if you start singing, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. I don't have that kind of confidence. No, so it'll. It won't be a duet. It, you, like you may think suddenly we're doing a duet, but <laughs> yeah, it's mostly you. It'll just be you. Yeah, I wouldn't do any singing. I wouldn't put anyone through that so you were starting to say out there in the ante room yeah, yeah you were starting to say that you were listening to the colin quinn episode and uh of the moment and that um you related to what his reaction to being sort of recognized from being on r remote control to your own uh, experience being on guy code absolutely i think um i think the weird thing about comedy is it draws a lot of people with father issues with dad issues and i think there's something that happens when a comedian explains something in an interview or I've, this is just me personally speaking like you're like oh i feel that too i'm not crazy that's the first thing you're like oh so i'm not an asshole that's basically what it all comes down to so like when colin was talking about being um on remote control and feeling um like his stand-up wasn't being validated i I connected immediately with that, and I was like, "Oh, I know, I know what that feels like." Maybe not on a on, on a bit on the level as big as Colin had in the '80s, but I definitely know what that feels like. I, I have this written down. I'll show it to you. I mean, look at the last question that I have written down on there, and it says, "Okay, yeah." What does it say? Yeah, you seem to only want to be known for being a great comedian. Like being on Guy Code almost annoys you. It doesn't annoy me at all. It's um, there's, there's so many guys that are so good on it. Uh, I don't ever feel like I have that much confidence to be like, let me tell you how it is. Because most of the time, the way I think is, I th my thought process is mostly, I'm probably wrong, but in case I'm not here, I'm like the opposite of most people. Most people are like, I'm pretty sure, but I'm like, I'm wrong, but 
that's how I feel. So a show like that where you have to be kind of brazen about your opinion. You have to be authoritative. Which I'm not. I'm very beta. So I don't really... So a show like that, I... um, You think you're beta like versus being alpha? I feel like I... I I don't know. It's, It's a weird thing where it's almost like... Uh, I want everything I do is so people will watch my stand up. That's like anything I do. So I feel like I don't want to be misinterpreted as someone. Because I, I feel like I, I, as someone who what you don't want to be misinterpreted as what I don't want like someone to think that I'm like some guy. that's like what's up? Like hey, let's smash some. Like I'm a bro. Yeah. Like what's up, bro? Like let's drink some beers and. I mean, you're six foot four. I know. I two hundred pounds with. <laughs> Shoulders like Larry Zonka. I mean, <laughs> they're gonna. I mean, they're gonna. Uh, it's. Um, I mean, you are just um, uh, a lucky break away from being Sergeant Slaughter. <laughs> like just a couple of think, lucky genetic things happen. Oh uh, well, knowing my luck, I'm more Carrie Von Eric. Than... <laughs> well, <that's>, no, <laughs> don't. You don't uh, want to be a Von Eric. No, not at all. There's only one left, right? Yeah, yeah I think so. Uh, but I think no. I think I'm more like. I guess this is a problem without growing up without a dad when you're just like a, my mom was like I was raised by like a uh, hardworking Irish lady from Fresno so it's like you're like my whole life has basically been like you're good but you're not the sh-. like that's like but you're not great well you know that was uh, always my mom's parents but, but I don't think I just want to it's I mean I wrote down this these are knowing you as well as I do yeah it sets this up you know because you're you're hitting stuff that I, I definitely we're gonna talk about but i'm not sure you're telling 100 percent of the truth about what you don't like about guy code i think it's all true those things you don't like but it i don't i'm not sure i think you just think it's cheating for you to get famous that way yeah i do yeah it's not that I you do. don't want to be an authority because i've seen you outside a comedy club i mean you don't mind taking the position of being authoritative about what you know and care about well i think even what i just said what my mom said what, how my mom raised me that shows you right there what it is where it's like I was told, whatever you get, you better work for. And it better be the, like, kind of going the slong, like, I don't know, being the underdog. I don't like not being the underdog. But, but, um, but nobody, um, nobody came to you in Aurora where you grew up, Colorado, right? And without you doing anything or in college in, in, in Arizona or when you were doing double shifts at uh, Dos Toros. Yeah, Dos Caminos. Dos Caminos. Nobody, nobody came to you and said, like, I'm the magical fairy of MTV. I'm going to give you guy code. <laughs> no, in fact, they brought me in to read for season one, and I, I don't think I was good enough. I wasn't good enough in my mind to be on the show. See, what I like about the show is you're just being funny to someone in a room. But, I mean, you got... The, I'm saying you um, you got guy code. Like, it's not cheating. I mean, you went out there... How many guys do you think uh, Yeah, audition? but I felt guilty about... I felt guilty about Conan. I felt guilty about the half hour. I felt like... When I'm rolling around with guys like Joe List... And it's like, I got a great comedian, Joe List, fantastic comedian, one of my best friends. He does. And I'm like, I feel guilty. I'm like, he should have a half hour. I'm that guy. That's like, that's why I said I'm beta. I'm more like you go first. I'll, I'll, I'll wait. That's who I am. I'm the guy that's like, uh, that's how I feel inside at least where I'm like, I'll wait for the next, like the, you know what I mean? I mean, I kind of know what you mean. (laughs) I know. No. Yes. I do know that that's how you feel. I do know that you feel torn. Yeah. Um, about. Um, about earning your way and about the balance between and balancing um your ambition with your sense of self somehow your ambition with where you where you think your rightful place is yeah yeah well it's also 
I, I've always, I, I, my number one desire is to be like the most legitimate comedian, like to be so. You want to be pound for pound. You want to be best pound for pound in the world. Absolutely, no doubt. I want to. I want that. Yeah, and I want to work my ass off for it, so that when it does, if it ever does happen, someone will be like, "That guy earned it." And I feel like uh, anything that might. I don't know, make it look like I'm not going for... I, like, when I listened to your episode with, with Gary, which was a phenomenal episode... Goleman. Yeah, Gary Goleman, who's, I mean, just, you know, an, an amazing comedian. And he's like, when I first saw Dan Soder, I didn't think he was a comedian. I thought he was kind of hanging out for the life. And I get that. And I totally see how but he could have But what's the second half of what he said? But then he said, you know, then he realized that I was... I, I forget the second part of uh, it. I think he said you became a really great comedian. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you're, I you're like, more. oh, but the whole die, oh, uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know, man. I, I just... Wouldn't it be weird if I was walking around like, what's up? That's how you do comedy. I don't think I could... Well, I mean, that's the thing. So you, you and I met... I mean, it's just a lot of people walk around like that. Which is insane to me. I mean, a lot of people walk around as though it's uh, it's their birthright to get <laughs> stage time, a screenplay sold, recognized. No, I don't. I don't know. That's so f alien to me. And legitimately, no. Being, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I remember. So, I mean, I was trying to think. Walking over here today, I was, I was trying to think about so the, the day you and I met. Was that your first day in New York or second day? It was in my New York? second day in New York. It was a Sunday night at Stand Up New York. I believe was I can it even, an open mic or was it a nighttime? It was an open mic. It was. Uh, I can even tell you the date. It was January 9th, two thousand seven. Right. So I guess I'd been doing stand up. Oh six. No seven. Oh seven. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I'd been doing. So I'd been. I'd been doing stand up probably for three months at that time. Yeah, and I'd been doing stand up about two years in Arizona in right. Tucson. And and you were doing it in, in Tucson. I mean, you were already a a comedian, but. I was thinking about those open mics, and this isn't to disparage anyone because I'm sure I am forgetting people. So I'm not talking about you if if, if you're listening, whoever, whomever you are. <laughs> but I, I was saying, like, if if um if on an average Sunday night or Thursday night, fifty people showed up to do to do yeah. comedy or forty, let's say, yeah, I would say it was always it was always in between about twenty five and forty people. So out of that group, let's out of the biggest group of that, out of the fifty, yeah, how many of those people would you just say? So just to answer the question, how many of those people would you say were basically sane? Five, right? Five, five people, and you're, and we both know you're being generous. Oh, I'm being VI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I was to be honest, like three. Yeah, I mean, I know who they. I mean, like you know yeah. who they were. Four. Right. I can count them. I, yeah, I know me, exactly you, Joe, and Matt. Yeah. That's basically, and then occasionally, like some other woman or dude. Well, you would know what's show funny up. is, I didn't even realize in those moments, guys were coming in and out. It's like when a character in a prequel comes, and you're like, oh, in like the third sequel, he's really good. Like Dan Saint Germain and Mike Lawrence would come to those open mics, who are two fantastic comedians now. But though they weren't there a lot, they weren't I'm like the main... open. They weren't like open micers, and well, they were, but they were just in a different part of town. It's kind of like the Warriors, where it's just different gangs in different parts of New York. That's how open mics work as far as stand-up goes. You right. these little pockets of people. Right, and I was, you know, I started doing stand-up. I was 40, and you were, how old were you when you came to New York? 23. But the fact that we were both relatively normal, sane people, I thought you were a construction worker. Oh, that's, yeah, I love that. What do you mean? Like, I thought you worked in construction. I was guaranteed that you were, you wore a, it was the winter, but you wear like these Jordan sweatshirts. You had a beard. 
Yeah. And I was like, and the way you talked, you carried yourself like a dude that works. Like you carry yourself like a man that's that's tired at the end of the day. And I was like, oh, well, this guy, and I don't know, I didn't, I'm coming from Colorado and Arizona, so I don't know that like there's just people, that there's major screenwriters that walk around. You know what I mean? That's not, that wasn't something in my head. So when I remember the day you're like, I'm going to LA and I'm like, oh, you going on vacation? And you're like, no, for work. And I was like, what do you do? And you're like, I was, I'm a screenwriter. And I was like, and then uh, I think my first reaction was like, oh, good for you. You're ch- uh, like, uh, uh, not uh, a pretentious but way. I was but trying. Like, you were, I thought you were trying. And then you're like, I wrote Oceans 13. And my first thought was like, why the f- is this guy at an open mic? What kind of man seeks this kind of pain out? Uh, and it was yeah. almost like, I had to, but the first night you came up to me the first night and yeah. introduced yourself somehow. I was drink. I'm, I'm a very, I was, I, dr- I drank a lot. Right. I'm very social when I drink. I remember around that same time, my son was on a basketball team and some with some kids who, some of whom went to the private schools and some of whom uh, didn't. And one of the kids who, who didn't came up to Sammy and with excitement and said, uh, your daddy's blue collar, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and Sam loved it. And he goes, oh, yes, very much so. And then yeah. one of his friends was just like, rise, and like yeah. totally blew it and made the kid feel. But, but no, I, I mean, I remember in, in those things, I was just showing up wanting to try to see if I could make people laugh. And I didn't want to trade on. I don't want to trade on the fact Which that I, I was like is... in, you know, in show business already. I and just it... wanted to like challenge myself. And, you know, that's a very admirable thing because there's people that. There's credits that people use in stand-up where you're like, wait, what? How the hell did you how did you use that as a credit where it's like, you've seen him on NBC? And it was like, I was on the local news behind the weather lady. <laughs> and you're like, you can't. So for you not to do that, that is very admirable. And it was like, um, I was always super embarrassed until I actually got credits. Because clubs, clubs and colleges is like the... Um, Almost like the associate's degree of stand-up. Where you're <laughs> well, just that's like, it. You've seen him at... Clubs and colleges, you're like, yeah, I took a couple math classes down at the JUCO. Right. You know, and it's like, I, I, you know, I got some junior college credits. But what I... Here's the thing. What I remember about you, because this is about you, is um, you were the... Uh, anywhere I went in the world of comedy, starting when, the, when we first met, I mean, you were there, and you were soaking everything up, and... You were absolutely determined. Like, I don't know if you were funny at first. I mean, I remember the night that we each knew the other guy was kind of funny was when we went down to some bar and yeah. this weird bar that we got up, both of us got up at and performed. I think I'm fun. I was really funny at that time. I was really funny off stage and was not. I was. I could get the job done, kind of. You know what I mean? I was doing the job sloppily. Like it was a sloppy job. Yeah, you were a young person trying yeah. to sort it out, and you had basically been in in Arizona, um, had gotten to where you were a middle act, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was you know, and you were doing different and, types of stuff. Yeah, laughs in Tucson. Um, there's something to be said about when you're in that stage of just finding what you know, stand up, learning how to do stand up comedy. You're basically walking around a dark room, bumping into furniture, and then you kind of learn the lay of the land. And then you kind of, and I don't know if the light ever goes completely on, but I think the more you do comedy, you kind of know what's out there. And you're like, well, there, there's like this, it, it's an old philosophy that uh, that someone taught me in college that I smoked too much pot and forgot about. But it was that's basically it. That was like an enlightenment theory. 
Um, in fact, I think it's John Dewey's theory of enlightenment. I don't know. I might be way off. I just know. Let, let's stipulate that it is that. Let's just throw it out there. But it's like that kind of thing. Like doing stand-up um, in Tucson, you I only saw a certain kind of comedy, which was road heavy. Road comics are road different comics. than New York City, L.A. comics. 100%. Every comic... It's uh, why. It, How's it different? Explain well, what the difference is. Well, they always say that, that like comedy's a language, right? So I just look at it like different dialects. Like you're looking at a New York dialect, is and an LA dialect, and then you have the road dialect, which is it's got to blanket everything. It's got to work with everybody. So it's very uh, treaded over, done hack. It's you know hack gets thrown a lot around these days, but to me, what hack means is like. You've seen a guy do the same joke you've seen seven other guys do. You're like, yeah, you do, do you not have that much self-awareness that that's a treaded on topic. So it's 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 uh it's comedy that's not specific. It's very it's generalized and like easy. lowest common denominator. It's easy comedy. Some most of the time, I think when you see like a lame dude on the road, it's because it's easy because they don't care. They're doing it at that point. Some of those guys, it's just a job. It's. Not it lost its love. The luster's gone. For some of these guys, it's like I got four kids in Virginia. I got to send them a check. I'm doing this club, this club, this club. Same act, whole way through. And to watch that as a young comedian, you think that's what comedy is. I mean, they're grinding it out, and actually, it's 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 their priorities have shifted. Yeah, that's, that's it's, it's not it's not even, uh, and they're making audiences happy. So it's actually uh, they're I, you don't even have to right. You don't even have to. Sl- I mean, to me. It's not a blight on their names. It's just that it wasn't what you were interested in. And to us, we think the new the thing that that you have to do to to get over here and to get over in L.A. is harder and and kind of worth pursuing because it's it's more elevated. You have to you have to. Um, I think in New York and L.A. the reason that comedy comics ne- have to go there is because. Um, you you wash off all that gunk that you learned in the middle. You know, there, now there's certain cities like I was gonna say. Obviously, there's like Chicago, Detroit. Denver, Denver's great. got an amazing right. scene. Uh, Austin, Texas, Boston. You know, how many generations of great comedians have came out of Boston? No, yeah, but you're talking about people. There are actually in almost every state. There's probably a comedy club. Yes, that's drawing the special talent, whether it's an alt room or some room. But I wasn't you, at that. You're club. talking about guys who're playing cruises and yes, um, the the kind of big general convention years Maybe, comedy club. Exactly, drunk Maybe. people. People going out, is there, that right? Yes, that's exactly what it's right. A club that was probably opened in the late '80s because of the boom, and you're, you know, and so for some guys like me, that was the only club that's there. I was going to U of A. It's the laughs in Tucson, but I also met some of my best friends. You know, Jesse. I met two comics, uh, Jesse and Johnny, that I'm friends with to this day, and they're in LA now. So it was. Some of us looked at each other like, I knew what I liked in comedy. And I, I was kind of a comedy snob because I was kind of the I'm I'm really the first generation of Comedy Central where I could watch stand up at 3 p.m. on an afternoon when I got home from school and I would know who these guys are that no one else you know what I mean I kind of knew I needed to go somewhere I knew I couldn't stay in Tucson Did you know you were going to have to basically throw out your act when you came here Took me about five days and then I was like well let's hit the reset button. Everything I had was wrong, and then I and then I looked at my. I was maybe doing twenty minute sets in Tucson, and I was like, maybe four of this is passable in New York. And I remember there's this guy that I knew that he'd been on the road. I believe he was from Texas, and he moved here. And mine was like 
all right, let's learn to crawl, then walk, then run. And he was like, we're standing outside Rafifi smoking a cigarette. And he goes, if I don't get SNL in three weeks, I'm gone. And I go, well, then you should probably just go, dude. And he, I think he did. I think he left like six months that later. That guy is Bobby Moynihan. And that guy is Will Ferrell. I'm older than I'd say. No, it was, it was like one of those things where that was my first instance of someone being cocky without having reason to be. And I was like, wait, are you insane? SNL? Have you tried to find that guy? No. Because... Do you know his name? I mean, don't say his name. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, I know his name. Kick him when he's down. Yeah, no, I know his name. And he's, you know, he's a funny dude, but it was like... Did you see... I saw... Especially when we met, I watched a lot of guys from that time get spit out by this city. There's something about New York where if you come in here thinking you're better than this place, it will buck you fast. No, I mean, there was one guy there who at that time was on a different level than anybody else. I mean, your friend Joe. I mean, it was unbelievable. And uh, and he doesn't... He just... He just decided not to do it. I think Life caught up. He and... got sidetracked. It was always like, the, well, I was. I'm. I'm fortunate in the position that I, I. I sought New York out and moved here to do this. He's from here, so it's in his backyard. So how much is he getting distracted? That, not Joe List, who we mentioned earlier. It's no, no, another no. person Joe, named yeah, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Joe Alexander. Joe Alexander, who's hilarious. And Joe, if you're listening to me and Dan talking, get up. Man, yeah. because... you could still do it. Stand up's not the NFL, it's not the NBA. You don't, first of all, he's not even 30. He's 30. I think he's 30. Just 30? Oh, then you yeah. can't do it anymore, Joe. <laughs> then you're out. <laughs> it's over. No one will draft you. Don't even listen, honestly. Just shut it off now. But he was a guy that it was like, that was my first instance of seeing someone with such natural talent that I'm like, oh, Jesus. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, what am I? That was almost one of the first times I saw somebody and I was like, should I do this? That's awesome, right. Like, yeah. Tucson, there was people where I was like, oh, that guy's funny. But Joe was the first instance of, like, oh, man. It's like probably being a basketball player and watching someone dunk for the first time. You're like, ow! Oh, my God! Right, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, but but you're the same size as the person. Like, yeah. there, there's no reason Joe yeah. should have been that much able to sort of, you know, that much fun, able to light it up the way that, yeah. that, that he was by just this natural power and charisma and the way his mind just works the only person i've seen to rival his kind of natural coolness on stage is a comedian named michael che when i saw michael che i was like he kind of reminds me of joe alexander not just because he's another black dude but because of the way joe you just wanted to listen to everything he said if it was funny or not you're like i'll listen well, well yeah that that's that's uh, an interesting thing about you soder which is um you really make a st- study of this and you have <laughs> yeah. almost yeah i mean almost to the point where it's like obsessive levels i should not have almost a, i mean you're you are still i should have a beautiful mind shack behind my apartment where it's just a bunch of red lines going through papers and you're like really you studied hicks's cigarette joke about smoking outside you did six thesis is on it i'm like i just i don't know i wanted to see joe list who i've I've talked about is is i met him about four months living in new york and he was not only as thirsty for comedic knowledge as i was but he was way better and farther along and opening for like nick DiPaolo. so joe and i and we both loved boozing and we we instantly got along so there was a guy where i was like he was him and nate bargetsy Another fan. I mean, you know, I'm saying a lot. Of, look, all these guys up. They're fantastic. But Nate and Joe were like my comedy older brothers. Like they're a little bit older than me. They'd done a little bit more than me, but they weren't so displaced and so far away that um, that they f- forgot what it was like to be me. You understand? What it, like they still understood what it was like to be an open micer and to be running around. Yeah, they weren't father figures. They were older brother figures. Exactly. 
and it was um and it was like one of those things you know how uh you said it earlier where you were like you always want to be pound for pound you want to be legit joe list used to get mad at me because there used to be this one comic that would say that i was hacky for doing voices uh, not, I don't, he, who, who said that? I, it's just this guy, I'd rather, you know, he's, we ended up, we're friends now, but he, he used I, to get, I know him. No, no, you don't know this guy. So he used to get drunk and say like, oh, you know, you're just doing, and it made me super self-conscious because I'm like trying to become a good comic in New York and Joe List would get so mad. He'd be like, what are you doing? You're writing good jokes. Do your voice. He would just get so like, motherfucker, just do voices. Like you can do them. Why don't, why aren't you doing it? And like, Nate Nate had a better way. Nate goes, it's like you can dunk in basketball, but you're self-conscious for dunking. <laughs> yeah, man. Whatever. I mean, whatever gets you over. Yeah, but for me, it's like, no. I right. need to be locked. Like, I need to have, like, well-written jokes. I need to be... My stage presence needs to be good in my... And then I can add voices. You would rather, just to go back to where we started for a second, I mean, if I gave you the choice to have two people come up to you today who both remembered a joke you told in a club and said that they loved that joke versus 200 people coming up to you because they saw you on Guy Code. I would take the two people in the club. Yeah, no matter what. Every time. And nothing against Guy Code. That's great. Those fans are nice. Stand up to me when someone's like, when someone says like, uh, and I think most comics will agree with me when I say this, when they say a specific line of yours where they're like, when you said such and such, that's so funny, immediately in your head you're like, okay, cool. <laughs> like, you're like, right. yeah, oh, thank God. Okay. So it does work. Right. You can't be told yes enough in stand up. You can be told no and it's crippling, but laughter, you're like, that's why everyone remembers the bombs and forgets the kills. Yes. Right. Because the kills, you're like, well, I'm supposed to be doing that. And when you bomb, you're like, oh, what? And then it's just all, it's just this avalanche. Yeah, like, even it? in conversation, if I say something unfunny, I'm like, if I could redo that. If I could uh, find uh, a way to make the fun. No, it is true. I mean, what's that? I mean, we quote this in Rounders, but there's this guy, I think Jack King, who says, uh, few players remember the big pots that they won, but everyone remembers the outstanding bad beats of their yeah. career. I mean, you I remember, remember when you bombs. tank. I remember my first bomb. You remember when you get crushed. Oh, you remember when it, when it's just your dry mouth, you can't swallow properly. And, you know, like if if people have heard the Colin Quinn episode, a, a great thing that he said was, there's just you can throw everything at them and they still won't laugh at you. There's this amazing ability for them just to go like, you feel crazy. You feel like a crazy person. You're like, this joke has worked a lot. And all of a sudden, nothing. It's almost like with me, it, I laugh at it. I'm like, what the got nothing how did and then it makes me doubt that joke that's, why that's it's like, it and then i'm like well should i be doing that joke anymore like because to me it's i love i read someone on facebook recently this guy that i'm not really friends with i just added him he's like material's not that important and i was like ah I, and i deleted him on facebook yeah like, well good yeah he's wrong yeah bye. i mean people say that what they mean is don't like sometimes people misunderstand there's like helpful advice that can get you in the right mindset to create yes but and one of those things is you know don't stress. Don't let the fact that you don't have total confidence in your material stop you from performing with everything that you have. You can connect with the audience, yes. and that will help your material. Yes, and material alone won't do it. And that's true, right? Well, yes, absolutely. And I think a bigger part of that is the um, ability to take a risk on something that you're not sure, but you have this like. If I'm one of the things I'm most jealous of is. Uh, a comedic named a comic named Kurt Metzger who has an hour special coming out soon. 
He's fear. I've watched Kurt do jokes where I'm like, did he even like? But they're great jokes. But did he even what prepare? Did he even? But it's like, oh my god, he's just gonna. He just like came out and said this joke to this crowd. That was his first joke. Like he came out that hitting that hard on such like a crazy topic, a topic where you'd be like, like kids killing themselves. You're like. He's just opening with that, and it's fantastic. And it's like, he turns the audience off on the first half of the bit, and then by the second half, they're laughing because it's so funny. Like, comics like that, like a tell, um, guys that just throw stuff out that you're like, even Colin will just try a joke, and you're like, my God, I would never... You won't? I will, but I gotta try it at, like, the Creek in the Cave first, or, like, a bar show first. And then... Over maybe like a month of, oh, I got these two beat, I got these two tags that work. Then I'll try it at the cellar. But like to walk up and just be like, bam, bam, bam. And I'm like, I mean, it's good for that. I can't, I don't have that. I don't have balls like that. What, what are you afraid of? A tailspin? Just trying something. It's like, you know, I still want to be like funny. I want to have a good set. So I can't just like, there's guys that just lay it all out there. Like, I'm just good. This is everything. And then me, I'm like, if something doesn't work, I'm like, here comes an A bit. Like, I gotta, I gotta try to work. It's like what Colin was saying about, he's always, he always wants to make the audience laugh. Sometimes. Yeah, but Colin will say whatever. Uh, yes, have... but he, the override for him, it seems like the, what he gives primacy to is being in the moment, alive, present. And and not and trying to be uh, as uncalculating as he possibly can once he's which up is there. no which is I mean that's uh, you know that's amazing that's admirable I I don't know if I I have that muscle sometimes but that's a muscle that takes a lot of years to work out in order for that muscle to be strong enough I like being original but I also like working a bit I like knocking it and knocking it and knocking it till there's maybe three sentences and then trying to build that up and then knocking in that and then like you know like C louis ck gave that analogy of folding the samurai sword but it really is for me when i started to learn how to write jokes it became fun to make them airtight just like and that's why when you do something like a like a half hour special it's fun because now you're shining you're getting laughs on lines that you have just compressed so much that they're not really punchlines anymore. They're more just setup lines, but they used to be punched. So you know, like, you're just like cramming it, snowballing it. So when you get to do it in front of like a theater audience, it's kind of like you get to let the belt out and you're just like, oh, here's the whole bit. And everyone's like, yeah. Like I opened for Hannibal Burris at the Paramount Theater in Austin for Moon Tower. And it was like, I think I told you, I might've told you, it was the first time I had a punchline hit and I've, I've been, I've done big shows where this has happened. But it's so funny because it's like a punchline will hit and you get a huge laughter and you like take a sip of water and then start walking into your new bit and you're like, and that's the only time in my head where I'm like, okay, maybe I maybe I can be a comedian. <laughs> like maybe, maybe I'm a comic now. Yeah, you finally think that you're actually, yeah, you you're are, like, you're a, no, a comedian? No, not definite though. You're like, maybe. I might have a, I might have a career at this. Yeah, you know, that compressing thing. I mean, Hemingway would talk about, uh, would talk about the idea that he would only he would he would amass this incredible body of knowledge about whatever he was writing about and then try incredibly hard not to reveal any of that and hope that just the little bit that he would show what he would call like the top of the iceberg sitting over the water that just saying that you the reader would feel that underneath that was this giant mass of knowledge and he was like but if you just wrote the top without that they'll sense that too exactly well it was like 
I think there's something about compression uh, of all that and the way the ability to do that in a uh, very simple way to show all that knowledge is like both you and I have talked about. We both love Hunter S. Thompson, and he was obsessed with F. Scott Fitzgerald's Length of the Great Gatsby because it's so short, and Hunter wanted Fear and Loathing to get that short, that compressed, where one sentence could you'd have twenty thoughts about that one sentence, and I think yeah. that's. You know, you're distilling something. I mean, yeah, Wes Anderson does it. I I, I uh, met him a couple of times. I don't know him, but uh, I remember asking him once, "Why are the movies 90 minutes?" And he he said, "Well, they just wouldn't support any more time." And I'm like, "That guy gets more into those 90 minutes." Yeah. And as an yeah. artist, you just look at it in awe. I look at it in awe. I can't. And you know, why... it's the 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 focus and discipline and like the rigor of thought and effort. Well, that's why when I watch Gary. Goldman, yeah. When I watch Gary Goldman or Greg Rogel Gary's or Dan Natter, at it, yeah, and or all these guys, where I'm like, even a tell, a tell, I would say you don't realize how packed his sentences are until you watch a special. Like if you watch Roadwork, his latest special, you're like, my God, that is a that that's got depth. That's got like it's it's there. You know something's there. And like the but I feel like you there. sometimes. Uh, well, I think that some of those guys. Um, have a little more. I don't want to say faith in the audience because you have faith in the audience, but they will allow the audience to go a further distance to reach them sometimes than you want to, oh. or than you're ready to yet. Yeah, and that's something I've even, uh, you know, working in therapy, you realize like, oh my god, like you know, I go to the comics therapist, the one that everyone goes to, and he's great because he understands that that's what I do. I do comedy, and I want to talk about comedy, and the best way to solve my emotional problems is probably talking about comedy. But he watched my half-hour special, and he was like, you're fun. You're very funny. Um, why do you want people to like you so much? He's like, you, you can keep going. Keep going with the that, joke. Yeah, I thought of it the other night when I saw you uh, at stand-up, because I, I, I thought you still don't quite want them to know how smart you are or what you really think. Almost. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I you want to be a bro. Still. You know what it is? I don't want to be a bro as much as it is I treat the audience always like a stepdad. Where I'm like, I want you to be around and I want you to like me, but I don't really know if I'm really willing to let you in. And that's what it always is. It's like, all right, stepdad. Because that's what it, it's like. I don't know what, why so many comedians have these messed up relationships with their dads, but it all, like, or in any way, parenting is so hard and difficult. You see it. It's created comedians. That's how hard parenting is. But it's like, I don't, I don't, I can't do a trust fall. I can't just be like, I think this. But you could. I Maybe. And may, hopefully I will be able to. Because it's the, th it's like the one, because if, if you think about the guys you love the most. Burr. They do. CK, they do it. Patrice. They, I mean, and you have every risk takers. You have every ability to. Like you took a giant. Because here's the thing, right? So you were raised in Aurora. Yeah, Aurora, Colorado. Single mother. Yeah. You see your dad sometimes not for a year. Yeah, I'd probably go with. Uh, you know, by the time I got like ten, it split up to about. I'd see him once a year, once every two years. I'd go out to San Francisco and spend about like four or five weeks. And you loved the 49ers because your dad loved the 49ers. San Francisco 49ers, San Francisco Giants were like my thing. It's the thing I, I I cared the most about, and then like Hulk Hogan. And because of your, I mean, you cared yeah. about it because that was your father. That's why you, I talked. Right? That's the only thing we talked about. I'd call him up. He'd be like, "What'd you think about Matt Williams?" You know, 
I'd be like, guys, you know, I think he'll be back in like two weeks. Will Clark's looking like he's, and then call up, uh, what do you think about Montana's back? Ah, you know, maybe it is a good deal. I remember we talked about it like we were doing it. My father and I relationship was like we were a sports talk radio show. Right. I mean, this must be like calling in from Aurora, Colorado. We got my son, Dan. <laughs> Dan. I just want to know where my birthday card is. Uh, I miss you. What about what? Well, what are you doing voices for? I'm a hack. You're a hack. It's cheap. <laughs> no, but right. But now this is why obviously you loved Bill Simmons so much because the way he writes about his. I mean, originally, I guess he and his I mean, dad and talking about sports and Bill Simmons was like you found your older brother's diary. Yeah, that's sports right. guy. One of my one of my biggest credits. I got on. I got into a mailbag before I left Tucson. When I was still a kid, I was on a. Sports oh yeah, how did you get in the how did you get in the mailbag? It was when Kevin Federline performed um, his his f- first live performance of him being a rapper. When Kevin Federline was a rapper, I wrote to Bill Simmons. I said, "Does this make Britney Spears the Mike Tyson of pop stars, where she was uh, the best at sixteen, peaked at twenty, and then I said, cus- I said uh, her breaking up with Timberlake was Customato dying." And then her meeting Kevin Federline was a mix of Don King, The Rape Charge, and Buster Douglas. <laughs> and I think that's why Simmons put it in there, because he thought that was funny. He's like, I just like that you called her. Yeah, you called and what were you credited as? Dan from Aurora? I think it was Dan S. from Tucson, Arizona. Because you were college. Because I was in college at the time. Oh, that's great. I mean, you know that's going to be in the description of this podcast. It, I mean, you know. In, uh, like the one-liner. I think it would go Conan, sports bag half hour no. <laughs> Dan, comedian Dan Soder who once got a uh, a question in, in the mailbag um, and but but so when did you realize you were you were funny when you're growing up that way were you I could make my mom's boyfriends laugh I thought that was crazy I thought that was like a, it was like my mom looked at me a couple times like a three-headed monster because I my dad was a bartender so when I was with my dad all I heard was bar speak the way he talked to his buddies, ah, you know, my ex-wife, ah, his beer's colder than the other side of my ex-wife's bed. He talked in like those snippets, like, and it was almost right. like, uh, so then I come home and my mom's like, this is Tom. And I'm like, hey, how you doing, Tom? Weather out there, huh? Making my balls stretch out. He's like, who is this seven-year-old? <laughs> like, it really is like, I have a bit about talking like a grizzled vet, but it is true at, at a certain point after my mom had been dating and I had been around my dad and his bar buddies long enough. I was able to make grown men laugh as a child. And I with was like, like your Morden Trench warfare humor? <laughs> yeah. They were like, who is this tiny man? But I wasn't... But that was me trying to get them to like me. Because I'm like, I don't know who this dude is. And my mom liked him, so I'm like, oh, Whose right. shoes are these? Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. Sometimes pretty big loafers. Um, but it was always like, uh, I think... And then in high school, it was just kind of the role I always was. I was always just a funny guy. But then my friends were really funny. So I think... I don't know. When did you become obsessive about stand-up, about watching it and listening to it? Dana Carvey's HBO special in 93. I was 10 years old. I think it was 94. I was 11. And and then I watched. I, it It happened quick because my dad used to play me Rodney Dangerfield all the time. So I just kind of knew that. And Richard Pryor. My dad loved Pryor and Dangerfield. So I would hear that. My dad didn't care about cuss words because he was a booze bag. So it's just like, hey, you know, the kid's all right. There's some Rodney Dangerfield. And I thought it was really. And my dad was super funny. So I always was like, those were the big things. And then like, you know, I, it's always funny because when you talk about comedic tastes, when you're honest, it's not as cool as being like, I got into Lenny Bruce and then I started listening to Carlin. It was like, I loved Robin Williams, Jeff Foxworthy, Dana Carvey was like my guy, Jim Carrey. And then when I discovered Rock and Chappelle, 
that was like you were in high school then i was in middle school first right. time i watched Chappelle, sure. and it was like oh that's that's like that's what i want to do it was just it was just like <gasps> it was like breathtaking You're like that's hilarious he did the joke about the it was his hbo half hour about the semen bandit or they found uh they found semen on the scene that's what it was and he's like that's a weird calling card, you know. Like, ah, we we have the robbery, but quick. And he like he does like a jerking off. And I remember Patton Oswalt's uh, HBO Half Hour, right, where he does the Nick Nolte as Han Solo. I thought that was the funniest. He's like, ah, hell, Chewy. Like he just does this great, admit, yeah, piss drinkers Inc. That whole bit, the uh, cops bit. He has an unbelievable cops bit. If you watch this half hour and you're like, that was before anyone was doing cops material. You know, I don't know that half hour of Patton's, and I'm a fan of his. He's, watch I it. think he's just spectacular. But I don't he's know a guy that, that, I, that I always like. Him, Colin Quinn, like uh, Burr, and, and Bobby Kelly. Like those are the guys that I I want to know. They're and Gary. Like, what do I do? They're kind of like the guys you look to. Like, what do I do? Like Colin's up there. If I have a real thing, I, I'll ask Colin for advice. Like, you want to? You know what I mean? It's well, yeah. You love this uh, the whole thing of um, of mentors and. Um, Having people who you can put in that position. Yeah, because I, I think it's a natural thing not having that growing up. You look for that, you know. I kind of in comedy, I and kind you of look fed. for their approval. I mean, you you think it's a, I think some party thinks a sign if they're willing to give you the advice. I mean, you're like the guy who's hoping that you know you're the fr- freshman on the on the varsity football team, and you want you know the moment the guy slaps you on the ass, you feel like you belong, right? I mean, that's you, you couldn't have a better analogy for that. That's that's exactly how it feels. They're the upperclassmen, and they're like, "Hey, good job out there," and you're like, "Really?" And they're like, "Yeah, you know the game," and you're like, "Because right, I sucked at football. I never had that in, in high school." So now it's like going to comedy and kind of having that. You're like, eh, all right. And you look at your peers, and you're like, this is fun. Like, it's fun. When you when you know you're effective, th- things are more fun. But I, I think that um, you're mo- – so I think that the moment for you – this is what I was building. So you go then, then you go to Arizona, and you're, you're at college, and uh, obviously having a, a good time at, at, at Arizona. I had a good time, but I was also an outsider still. Because Why? Arizona – Did you I- always feel very poor? Yeah. Especially when I went to Arizona. I didn't feel very poor because we weren't. My mom was good at her job. She earned. We had a three-bedroom house in the suburbs. I didn't grow up in a single-wide eating Fritos for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, even though they are delicious. Uh, you know, I we were middle class. and But then I went to Arizona, and I didn't realize maybe I'm on the lower end of that middle class than I thought I was. Because it's a lot of kids from Long Island, a lot of kids from San Diego, a lot of kids from rich SoCal places that would come in and have their dad's credit card, and they're like, we're going to go bar hopping. And I'm like, I got 40 bucks for the week. Right. Like, can't we drink Ice House <laughs> and smoke terrible pot? And they're like, no, 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 we got to go. We're going to the bars. And everyone's dressed up. Everyone had fashion senses. I was wearing jean shorts and liquor tees. Like, I was like, I was, I, I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't white trash, but I definitely wasn't cool. And then I got into radio, and I met people where I was like, they were older people, and they were fun, and we were wor- working at KFMA was... But in a way, you were, I mean, in a way, like, you went away to Alaska one summer, right? Yeah, yeah, in Alaska in 02. In a cannery? You worked in a cannery? I worked at a cannery. I worked on the dock crew at the cannery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In uh, Kenai, in, I was actually in Soldatna. I mean, you were doing man work. Yeah, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, and I think it's good for college kids to go do that. I don't know if you can still make as much money as I did. It was a really good haul for a summer. But it was like, you learned how to work. You know, eight hours throwing halibut heads into a grinder, into the ocean. And you're like, oh, this... But I remember that was... But being funny when we were were hanging out drinking beers after work, that was like the best for me. 
I was like, we worked all day, and now I'm making these guys. And did you know in the back of your mind then I'm being a com- I'm going to be a comedian? That's where I knew I could. And that's where I asked my aunt. My aunt Why? was like, How'd you know you could? I was making these real blue collar dudes laugh really hard, like really hard, and they were saying they're like, you need to do comedy, man. Like they were. That was like their response. When would you I was think? Killing. I don't think I've ever had sets that good since. Murdering in those bunk rooms in Alaska. But well, when you were when when you were doing that, when you were you know the mind when you get to the mindless part of the job because you got good at it, would you be thinking about routines you were going to do that night, or were you just letting it flow? I was letting it flow. I the place where I I learned I wanted to do stand up comedy was my mom's garage in high school. My mom, when I was 16, my mom kind of let it be known. She asked me if I had smoked pot. And I was like, yes. And she's like, if you do, do it in our garage. Do not drive. If your friends want to come over, I'd rather you guys do that where I know who you are and you're safe. That, and also, you won't get arrested and get a record. But no one drives if you want to come over and smoke pot. So my friends would come over and we're hanging, listening to music, you know, drinking beers. And it was where I learned that I could be really funny because I was making my friends laugh making jokes about teachers at school, making fun of the girls, you know, like that in the garage was where it all was like, I might want to do this. I asked my friend Brian Tannenbaum one, one night we were in the back, we were in my mom's backyard smoking a cigarette and I was like, do you think I could do stand-up comedy? And he was like, if you can be as funny as you are to us up there, then yes. Wow, I can't imagine how much that meant to you. Well, Brian's also, he's a lawyer now. He's like one of my smartest friends. So he was the guy, and he was also, he's also really funny. You know that friend you grow up with? They're like, you're kind of, like Brian's the guy where I'm like, he might be funnier than a lot of, the most comedians I know. Yeah, sure. And so for him saying that, being like, if you can be as funny. Yeah, I know a guy who works at Pfizer. (laughs) Yeah. I do. Yeah. I know a guy, Paul Ewing, works at Pfizer, uh, has a nice job at Pfizer, uh, you know, and uh, that guy, when he wanted to could gut you. Yeah. Like you would just fall dead out uh, and, and uh, laugh for days on end. I, w- I, t- I was telling you... My friend Pete Zizzo, too. Yeah, a couple I, of guys I know. Mark Sumner, the guy I went to college with, he was just the funniest guy in the world. And I was like, oh, man, there's still guys. Joe Alexander was like that when I met him. It's like, he was that guy. But so, you're, so, guy so your friend Brian, let's just, yeah. I go back to... Because I can imagine the pause, you kind of casually asking that question, but I imagine it took nerve for you to ask the question. Yeah, I think I was like, I'm finally going to ask it. Oh, you'd wanted to ask it. Yeah, because uh, I would always notice if the people laughing in the room, there was like certain guys, like my friend Joel and Danny, I really liked making them laugh, and I could make them laugh. And I kind of, they were really my first fans, where I could try stuff, and they would laugh. But Tannenbaum was always the guy where I looked to him to be like, is that, if he's laughing, because he was the smartest dude I knew. I was like, is he laughing? And if he's laughing, I'm like, mm, all right, that, that could be funny. But I wasn't thinking in bits then. I was just trying to be funny. It's like you're just trying to be funny. And so you asked him, and he said, yeah. And then when you go to Arizona, yeah. to college, yeah. did you start doing stand-up while you're in college? Yeah. My junior year, I went and uh, I went with two buddies, and we went and watched an open mic first on a Tuesday. And I watched it, and I was like, oh, I can do this. Like... But I didn't realize you wrote bits. So did you write? What'd you do? So you thought I can do this? Then what'd you do? I thought of a couple subjects that I like said funny stuff to to people, and I'm like, okay, I remember saying this about this. That's funny. You went back the next week, and I went back the next week alone or with your buddies? With one buddy, and I, I just want to. And you went back. Now, had you thought about it all week long? Yeah. Like if you were with your girlfriend, it, like I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. I was just like, uh, I was like, if I made someone laugh in conversation, I was like, maybe that would. 
Maybe that's... Maybe I should say that. Did it feel like a big deal to you going or not? It was Judgment Day. Oh, right. So it was a big, as big a deal as I'm imagining it was for you. It was, if, it was the biggest thing in the world. I was so nervous that I had to drink a 40 in the car. A 40 of beer. Like 40 On the way there, beer. and it didn't touch you. Didn't even bring me down a little bit. I was still pinging around, you know. And, uh, man, I went up, and it was, uh, it went really well. And it was that was terrifying because you're like what? And I remember uh, the guy that was hosting. His name was Kyle, and he he got off stage and he goes, "Oh really?" Because he said he's like, "This is his first time on stage." And he, when I was done, he's like, "Oh really? That was your first time on stage?" Like I was lying to him, and I was like, "Huh?" Did you tape it? No, because I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want anyone to know I was doing it. I wanted it was like a secret thing. So then I came back the next week and I'm bombed. Right, you, you bombed. And sure. then I bombed for. Weeks, and then a guy named Dave Ashley, a comic named Dave Ashley, who was on the morning show. I asked him when we were at a radio station dinner, I'm like, "Hey, I'm doing stand up at laughs," and he's like, "Are you writing?" And I was like, "What?" And he's like, "You got to be prepared, man. You got to go up there prepared." And I was like, "Oh, oh!" So then it became like filling out notebooks and being like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." Right. Let's figure out what I'm going to say. Yeah. You were twenty. Twenty one. Yeah, I was twenty. And you had a job on, doing on-air shifts at the radio station, or you were about yeah. to get... Yeah, no, I was on-air. I got hired at the radio station at 19, and I was doing, like, uh, overnights. Right, and, and to you, there's nothing special. This is the thing. You worked in Alaska in a cannery. You had jobs the whole time, radio job, comedy. And when anyone, you know, brings you up, they always talk about that you're, the, like, the hardest-working person in, 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 in doing this. I mean, you're one of the hardest-working people I've ever met, and you no. were that way from the beginning. Right, but you don't think so. No. No, no. Mark Norman, who's a great comic, he's the hardest working guy in New York right now. That guy does like, you know, Nate Bargatze would do 20 sets a week. That's insane. Yeah. How many were you doing, though, when you were doing the most? 15. I, I still do. I do my rules 12 to 17 a week. Yes, that's a comedy. And yeah. then writing. And writing. A, and and I, writing a show. Yeah, I just finished writing a pilot. That you sold, I mean, yeah, that you sold. sold to somebody. Yeah, yeah, we sold to Comedy Central. So right. We'll see if it goes from yeah, there. What, dri why, what, do you, what drives you so much? I still live in think? the same apartment I lived in when I was a waiter. I still live in a windowless room in Astoria, Queens. Yeah, you told me um, two months ago you were you were, you were moving, you were going to move. Because it could all, in my mind... Uh, I mean, you're I'm, on television like every day. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's crazy. I don't even think about it like that. I don't know. Yeah, you're on television all the time. Your, uh, your YouTubes get hundreds of thousands of hits. But it's that's like one joke, you know. That was my free bird, uh, the Russian joke. Yeah, that's my free bird. That someone took that, and you know, then they got popular in Russia because they like pro-Russian things. They don't realize I'm a Swedish Irish kid from Aurora, Colorado. But uh, I think um, I just want to be better. I think I always want to be. I'm consumed with the idea of becoming like really awesome. Like I just want to be. Like, when I watch Bill Burr, I'm like, oh, my God. Or Louie. Like, you watch these guys, and you're like, tell, how do I, Patrice, it was well, like, work. You well, so, okay, work. so you you do stand up in Arizona. It's, uh, you figure out how to get over to that crowd. Yeah. How to win. You you become friends so with some hacky. comedians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't know it's hacky. Yeah, yeah, At the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, to me, the moment is, you make this decision. Now, a lot of guys stay there, because if you would have kept going, you could have headlined out there and then been a road comic. Absolutely. Headlining, what kind of living can somebody like that make, if it's going well? For probably, I'd probably say around 40 grand. 
You you're can make hustling? 40 grand if you're hustling, doing Selling that, shirts, maybe 50 grand. And be a stand-up. And you loved doing it. You loved didn't realize you weren't really doing stand-up in your mind. I didn't realize I wasn't doing the stand-up. I always kind of felt like I wasn't doing the stand-up that I wanted to do. It always felt like it, there was something off about it. I couldn't... I didn't know, though. I was like... Because you, you don't know. You're like, am I doing it right? And you're like looking like at someone else like, am I doing it right? And they're in the same boat, and they're like, yeah, you're doing it right. But you're like, it doesn't feel right. And then I moved to New York, and I'm like... Well, that's what I was going to say. So then you make the decision. How do you... Because you came here knowing... How many people did you know when you came here? One person. Who's that? My friend Morgan, who's not in comedy. And so you moved to New York. I, I, lived, I moved onto his couch in Hoboken, New Jersey. And you decided you're coming here to be a comedian. Yeah, that was it. It was like... I, um, my, my be one of my best friends in the world, uh, Zach Moore, gave me the DVD Comedian. My senior year of... Yeah. Uh, which is, if you want to do comedy... One, it's the greatest. If you, watch, if you want to do comedy in New York, watch that movie. And if it makes your heart swell and like you have all the energy in the world, then move to New York. Because I watched it. I'd watch it and watch it in college and watch it. And I loved it. I watched watching. I loved watching Colin and Jerry talk bits at the cellar. Yeah, nothing better. And you watch all that stuff. And I was like, all right, I got to go to New York. I got to go. If I'm going to become a com the comic I want to be, I have to go to New York City. I, I can't go to L.A. Were you scared? Oh, I was almost too dumb to be scared. I was almost just like, you know when you say something and then you're like, well, I got to back this up now. Yeah, sure. That's what it was. I told too many people. I had said it. I put it out there. It was out in the earth. That's a powerful thing to do. It's like, I remember talking to a comedian named Trent Cole. And I called him and said, I'm going to move to New York. And he was from the South. He's from Florida. And he's like, give it a year. He goes, give it one more year in Tucson. Give it another year, then move. If you really want to think about it, think about moving. So two of my best friends, Chad and Mike, moved down from Colorado. We got a three-bedroom apartment in Tucson. And I picked up a second job at Bed Bath & Beyond unloading trucks because I was like, all right, now let's save up money to move to New York. So I worked for seven to eight months at Bed Bath & Beyond. So you listened to him. Yeah. And I, I really did. And I think it was the best advice because I saved up money. Um, I kind of had a plan. Like, all right, I'll move with Morgan. I have this much money to give him that I can live on his couch. And, you know, that was it. And I moved. I went back to Colorado. I sold all my stuff in Tucson. I sold my car. I got rid of everything. And I moved back with my mom for a week and a half. And then I came out here. Right away when you came to New York, what it seemed to me like was that you were really conscious of you know you know it's like you know somebody could you know somebody could work uh be at a dojo a karate dojo yeah and they work their way up that system and get to like uh green or blue and then they realize oh you know what this place isn't that great uh and there's another art that i could and then they go to the next dojo and then there are some guys who would walk into that dojo and go hey i'm dan i'm blue belt yeah and then there are some guys who would walk in and say have you done martial arts before and they'd say no, I'm here, teach. And it seems to me like your thing was like, I'm a white belt. Yeah. Like, you came to New York Absolutely. and you wanted to be an apprentice. One of the first open mics I saw, not the stand-up New York one, I saw some good comedy. Man, I remember like it was, might have been the first three months I was living here. I went to the Creek in the Cave when it was first opening. Like when Rebecca was really starting to do comedy there. It, it was it was actually, the, the open mic was called Kingdom of Heaven. It's John F. O'Donnell's open mic and it was like... Sean Patton, Kumail Nanjani, like uh, Rory Scovel. It was Jesse Pop. Like these guys where you're like, oh, shit.
was a stepped up. That was like a booked mic, like one yeah. notch up from a regular open mic. And they right? had all came here from Chicago. And, and those guys were hilarious. And that's where I saw Nate. Right. And it's, and it's like List was kind of the guy that was playing. He could run with them. If it was a game of basketball, he could run. He could run full court with them. And I was like, I got a lot longer to go. So I went to stand up New York and did check spots and just took beatings, and did open mics. And I remember you would go. You would. Uh, it seemed like you'd make this made this decision that you were going to go just see as much comedy and get known. Or you were in comedy clubs. Well, here's the every, thing. Like you came here and you approached it like, okay, I, to me it seemed like uh, I am going to be. I'm looking for Yoda anywhere I can find him, and I am going to be the lowest level version of Luke, and I'm going to go watch and learn and listen, and I'm going to prostrate myself to this. Well, I think what happened was I was doing that in Tucson. And watching guys like Troy Baxley and Ben Creed, these amazing comics, where I was like, how are these guys not on television? They're hilarious. And they were, like, letting me open for them and letting me do that stuff. So when I moved to New York and I could go watch Chris Rock or Quinn or Jim Norton, I could just go watch him do his... Or Patrice go watch him do a set. I'm like, how is everyone not watching all these but, shows? But most people move to New York and they completely forget what brought them here, right? Most people come here and the first couple of years, they're useless because, oh, holy crap, I'm in I'm in New York City. Well, I And used... they blow their... And you were making money. Like, they blow their money and they just chase girls. I mean, you drank a lot, but... Yeah. But <laughs> but you, you come... How did you keep this focus, do you think? Like, what is it about the way you're built? Comedy was the light that that uh comedy was my compass i just i learned new york through comedy like if i look at the neighborhoods i really know the most i know because of the clubs there because i would go that's where i was gravitated to it was just like oh well this place has got a mic well i'll go have a couple beers and do a mic and and run this bit then i can go do the bowery with like matt ruby and, and joe alexander then we can go over here and then i heard this comic's having a party or these comics are hanging out at a bar and then you're hanging out, and then the next time you're at that mic, you, you see that comic, and you're like, hey, what's up, man? And they're like, hey, how are you? And you do that mic with them. And it's like, the thing about New York is it's it's a society, which is unbelievable. It's the best. But, but so it wasn't, you're saying it wasn't even hard or disciplined for you. It's just where you wanted to be. Yeah, it's just like, I'm saying you, I moved you to the did... place where they had the thing I loved. Right. So why wouldn't I just go to That's why the... you didn't take your eye off the ball, because actually you just oh, want to be born to be here and do this. Why would I, yeah, why would I go to a dance club? Would I go out? If there was chicks at, if there were girls at the show, hopefully they saw me do well. I mean, everybody, wanted... everybody heard chicks when you then switched it to girls. Yeah. yeah right. We heard chicks. Oh, yeah, I said chicks. Yeah, but like, all right. Own so it. if you crushing what you said. If you crushing some muff, uh, <laughs> yeah, I but mean, it's like, but yeah. if, the, if there were girls, if there was chicks at the show, like, hopefully I do well. And then they'd be like, hey, you're funny. And you're like, all right, well, now I've got an in as opposed to, like, looking cool at a bar? Like, I don't know what that is. I'm not the guy that looks cool. I'm the guy that's probably going to... And then you were also waiting. You were waiting tables at the same yeah. time. You had a couple and jobs and working at a radio station, right? I got hired at K-Rock. Well, I got hired at Free FM on the weekends doing overnights and, you know, like, uh, on-air shifts on the weekend. I mean, people come to New York and they say it's impossible. You came to New York as, like, a kid from Aurora, basically. Yeah. At 24 years old. Yeah. And you're working at the, you know, at the time, like, probably the third biggest radio station. When we brought K-Rock back, it was huge. Right. You're working at K-Rock. Yeah. And hanging out with all the best comics and keeping a job, holding the job down. Well, the job drove me so insane that it was my fuel. I truly believe that, like, when I talk to comics who have kind of a comfortable job, it's really debilitating. Why? Because you don't want to get out of something. You're not squirming to get out of a stray jacket. 
Waiting tables was my stray jacket. It sucked. I worked on 50th and 3rd. You're dealing with businessmen, European tourists, who, they're rich Spaniards. They don't care about learning English. You're their servant. I'd go up at night and be killing. Occasionally. I'm not going to say that I act like it's every night, but you know, I'd have good sets. And the next morning I'd be hung over being yelled at because a Cobb salad took 22 minutes. <laughs> You're just eating your And you just wanted to go. Good. Let me get off work. I'm mad. I want to go talk about this. I want to go home, take a shower, go to the club, have a shot of whiskey and a beer and go on stage and make fun of this Spanish lady who, you know, drove me out of my mind or this rich 22 year old asshole who made me bring him his Diet Coke in two minutes. And, and so you would use that all in a way. As it fueled fuel. me. And, and then to me, making it in comedy was just being a comedian, just being able just to be a comic, to be like, what do you do for a living? I'm a comedian. And you're like, what? Uh, right. And when I got to, you know, I did a job emceeing these like shows for Guinness, but that got me out of waiting tables and that gave me enough money. I could just be a comic. And it was like the most terrifying thing in the world. Because <laughs> you're like, I got the thing that I've wished for. Right. Well, I remember, you know, you called me the day that you were auditioning for The Cellar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, because The Cellar is, and in, com the, in the movie Comedian, it's the center of that movie. It's Mount it's Olympus. It's the center. It's Mount Olympus. That's what Mark Norman called it once, and it's so true. And... Uh, I remember I was walking through Central Park and you called and I, I don't, maybe I hadn't spoken to you in a couple of months or something. You yeah. were aware, and, and you called me and you said, just want you to know, because I guess you were probably touching in with all the older guys that you knew who, yeah. you you know, you wanted like uh, those, for some reason you wanted those connect, those yeah. like to connections. I needed some dad seasoning. That's what I'm saying. You wanted like those. Older like, brother seasoning. Yeah. I needed. Stones, things. I think I'm, I'm. I called I'm you not, at night. I don't know if I'm old enough to be your... your older brother. Older brother, not quite dad. You're I could older... have physically been your dad, but that would have been weird. That's a, you're a Kentucky dad, and you're a first marriage brother. <laughs> a first marriage brother. You're a first That's marriage from a previous am. marriage. But you called me, I guess, at night. You called me I during called the day night. and then at night. Yeah, because I told you I was going to go down there, because Bobby had told me... Bobby Kelly, is who's the reason I'm, I got the audition. Bobby, I called Bobby, and I'm like, hey, are you going to be at the cellar? Kind of hinting. Because he had told me we were doing a podcast. He's like, I talked to Esty about you. And I was like, are you going to be around? And I, I looked at the lineup. I knew he was going to be there. And I did. And I I knew he knew. Because when I called, I go, hey, uh, don't really have anything tonight. I was thinking about coming by the cellar. It was a Friday night. And he's like, yeah, dude. Yeah, come on the middle show. And I was and Bobby, you know, that quick boss. I'm like, all right, all right, dude. All right, I'll see you tonight. And then I showed up. And I called you before that. I, think I'm gonna, I was like, I think Bobby's going to give me an audition. And you were like... You ready? I think that was the first thing you said. You just go, are you ready? And I go, yeah, I'm going to do my Montreal set. And you're like, good, good. What jokes? And you like went through. I ran like, your routine. You're like, yeah. Over the years, I've always checked in on your sets. Yeah, you'd always pop in, especially Stand Up New York, where I've always kind of you know stayed going there. Yes, and I would a... always know what your material was. We, we, yeah. we, uh, and I remember I... you and Sam came down when I came back from Montreal, and I was trying to get on Conan, and that was before I was in the cellar. Right. And you and Sam came out, because Sam was, must have been 15? Maybe, yeah. And he sure. came out, and like, we hung out, because that, that stairs, those stairs were still next next to the thing. We hung out on the stairs. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And, uh, but yeah, I remember I called you, and I was like, I'm, I think it's going to go down. And then you, I think, I, I called know. called you at night. And you texted me when you got off stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I texted you, yeah, because it was late. You texted me at like 2 in the morning to tell me it went well, and we spoke the next morning. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You called, yeah, you, I, I got, I got real drunk. Yeah. 
And uh, I got real drunk that night. <laughs> but you don't drink anymore. No, no, no. I quit. I, quit, uh, you know, I, I, I stopped drinking. For the joke writing. The lifestyle. For, uh, yeah. It was, it was burning, I was burning too much gasoline. I was burning too much fuel. I felt that was the case. You're the first person that said it. You know that? You're the first person to tell me to quit drinking? Oh, I didn't know I was first. I came to your office. I came to you and David's office uh, after Montreal. And you asked me about it. You're just like, how to go down? I was looking for uh, representation. Right, and we and you were like, "Come by, we'll talk about it." And I was telling you the people, and, and you oh, were, I remember. Yeah, I said, "Come, come, we'll talk through it. We'll help figure out what you what you should do." Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I went there, and I remember you were sitting in your office chair, and you were like, "We were talking about Montreal." You're like doing this rock, and you go, "You know, the only thing that'll stop your career is your drinking." And I went, "What?" And you're like, "You're drinking. You're you're." And I'm like, "Yeah, but I'm a fun drunk." And you go, "Yeah, but if you keep doing it, you're going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time." And then you're going to wish you would have quit earlier. And I was like, it was almost like this, like, you depanced me. <laughs> like, it was like this feeling of like, uh, you're right. I knew you were right. And I was like, uh, yeah, well, I'm, I got it under control. I'm only drinking beer. I was like doing that kind of stuff where I was like, I don't, I only drink whiskey on weekends. You didn't defend it. You didn't defend it. You didn't, you might've been inside wanting to defend it. You didn't defend it. Yeah. You were like, I know you pretty quickly went. Uh, I know that you're right. I don't know what I can do about it. Because I remember noting, because I knew that you were the real deal, you know, because I've been around comedy for so long and doing what I do. And I knew you could be, I knew you could be super successful comedian. You had every other ingredient. Like the hard, you are the hardest working person I know. One of the hardest working people I know in any area. You're obsessed with it. You have incredible innate gifts. But, um, but the way you drank was out of this kind of, uh, I drank like I worked on an oil rig. I was drinking like... Well, you were just drinking like somebody who wanted to <laughs> sabotage themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And you were the first... You were the very first person to say it. And the second person was Amy Schumer took me out to dinner. And this was... I think she had just done the first roast or whatever. She took me out. She's like, you got to quit drinking. She's like, you can have the career you want if you quit drinking. And I was like, that's two successful people that have just told me. And I was like, all right. And then I started gearing up. And then Joe List quit drinking. And he was my drinking buddy. And right. he went three months without drinking, and I was like, how is it? It was like asking your older brother what college is like. And right. he was like, it's the best. And I was like, and I was done. And I really was done drinking. It was, my my days were filled with just angst and depression. Well, I remember we made up angst and depression. I, I was so bummed out during the days and, and, and worried and like, uh, and then like I was hung up. My hangovers were like these panic attacks. Oh, when you were drinking. When I was drinking. Right. Yeah. And then when you stopped. No, when I stopped, it was like I got off the rock. I remember we made a plan. You called me. So you go, I'm going to, so we had that conversation. I'm going to stop. And then you called me. And you know, I, I'm, I'm not uh, in the program I and mean, I drink sometimes, yeah. but I don't have a, it's just not a problem for me. I remember you called me and you said, okay, I'm going to go do this Guinness thing. And I remember we were talking, uh, it was another time I was walking in the park and I, I said, uh. All right, you're not going to stop before you do that. Remember, we made kind of a plan that you were going to stop when you got back. When that ended. And then you called me when you got back and said, okay, I did. Yeah, yeah, I stopped. Well, what happened And it was, helped, right? Yeah, well, what I did was I did the Guinness thing, and I quit drinking for four weeks. And then they called me, and they're like, do you want to do 10 more cities? And I was like... And I knew I had the half hour coming up. And I always loved boxing. And I always remember, like, watching documentaries where they're like, fighters should never change their training routine close to a big fight. Right. And I was like, well, I'm drinking. So I'm drinking all the way through the half hour and I'm going to drink to the last day at Guinness. And that was the last day I drank. It was March 8th, 2013. And then you were done. And I was done. And I just stopped drinking and it was like the best thing I've ever done in my life. Yes. All right. We're going to finish up here. And it was the best thing uh, uh, for you. And I know that the sky's the limit. 
I just want to go through because there were different things I wrote down, and I want to make sure uh, I hit them. Um, but clearly, comedy did like save you in a bunch of ways. It was like the thing that made you think that there was a possibility for your life. Yeah, comedy gave me every form of validation that I needed in order to feel good about myself. If that's, that, that's the most pathetic thing I've ever said in my life, but it's completely true. It was the family that you always, you know, like watching Jerry and George talk on TV, that happens in real life with comedians. Those are conversations comics have. There's a reason that Larry and Jerry wrote that song, that, that show, is be, and it's like, I grew up, and that was my safety with all the going on in my life. I could always look to, like, Seinfeld or funny people to be like, all right. And this is what you wanted. And this is what I wanted. And now, and you, wanted, now you have it. Yeah. I'm very lucky. All right. Well, there's a lot more. We're going to have you come back because I, I want to do a speed round with you where we go through what makes very, because you're so obsessive. I want to talk about a whole bunch of different comedians. We'll do that oh, next time you're I'd on here. To. I just want to run why everybody's, why people are the best at what they do. Give me a like, You have the best understanding of it. All right. I will. Well, like, all right, who's the best joke writer out there, do you think? David Tell. Uh, okay. What makes Louis so great? He's conversational and you feel like you're hanging out with him. He's just, he's so funny and in it, he makes it look like he's not trying. What's Hannibal's superpower? He's, he's hilarious. He's just a funny dude. You mean in light? Like he's just, you, well, that sounds like well, so he's, it's he's effortless. Very, it seems effortless. Well, he, here's the thing about Hannibal. Hannibal's good at making things funny that you would have never thought that it's funny. Where you're like, okay. And then you're like, that's hilarious. He has this new bit about they card you at an airport bar. <laughs> and it's just like the funniest thing in the world. I'm like, damn it. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Um, and uh, and if you take something away from this little conversation, I mean, what do you think it'll take for you to, if you recognize this idea that some part of you still needs the audience's approval a little bit too much you need to, to really become who you want as a comedian? What do you think, like, what do you think you need to do to, to, to cut that? Can you just, I mean, what do you think you need to do to... Let go. Yeah. I need to stop worrying about validation. I need to stop. The thing that I seek, the thing that I seeked out in comedy that I found, I need to get over. I need to get over it. I need to get over the fact I do this now. How do I push myself? Yeah, no one's taking it away from you. But in my head, it's still, it's very much still could. It's, I, I still go into restaurants and I'm like, I can work here at lunch. I can make enough lunch. I can make enough money here at lunch for like, you know, maybe 500 a week. I could stay in my apartment in Queens. And it's like, I need to get over that. And I need to get over that. And I need to, it's like I need to Stuart Smalley myself. I you need should, to be like, should... I'm good enough. I'm great enough. And gosh darn it, people well, like I, me. You know, you're almost getting there without, but it's almost like you need to pick like a set a week and just say, I'm just going to go up there. Which I do. And I'm just going to I'm just going to go up there and I'm not going to I'm going to say whatever I would say to Nate and to Joe and to Brian and I'm just going to I'm finding those places and I'm also finding as my therapist says I just need to trust trust my sense of humor which is I something that I was like all right but it's I, I never knew you had a sense of humor <laughs> yeah yeah it's all uh, it's all stolen material there's a dead man in Orlando today Who's material I took? Dan Soder is Dan underscore Soder. Just at Dan Soder. Okay, at Dan Soder at, at Twitter. He's on Facebook. Yeah. Um, he has a couple of podcasts that he does. Yeah, check out You Know What Dude on riotcast.com. 
It's funny, he's never asked me to be on that one. Dude, I mean, Bobby would love to have you. No, I never asked. It's okay. Uh, I'm just saying he's it. on mine. Dan's on mine. We're getting you on You Know What, dude, and you should have Bobby, because he's an interesting dude. Uh, I'd love to. I'll come on. I'm not having two guys from that on, on mine. and not, <laughs> that doesn't. It's a twofer. It's a twofer. I'll do that. Yeah. And then, hey, I'm Brian Koppelman uh, on Twitter. And uh, Dan, dude. I'll say this, open mic, when you make a real friend at open mic. Yeah, sure. That's like you're a friends, war buddy. I mean, you are war buddies. You are yeah. friends for life. Thing is, is what makes me always, un- what makes me the most comfortable about our relationship is in my mind, you're still a construction worker. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Who I'm proud of your side hobby of writing incredible movies. <laughs> Great. Thanks. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, Subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcast.